Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to um, you um, Bjorn um, and I just wanted to check how you would like to be addressed. Um, Bjorn is fine. Yes, absolutely. I don't want to overstep. So, Um, and let me give the audience a short introduction. And then usually we do the rest uh, in a short interview. uh, And then we go into your uh, really interesting research. So um, uh, Bjorn Schumacher, he's a, a full professor and director of the Institute for Genome Stability in Aging and Disease uh, at the University of Cologne. And he did his PhD at the Max Planck Institute for uh, Biochemistry in uh, München and conducted his postdoctoral research as um, MBO and Marie Curie Fellow at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam. And um, He is um, the president of the German Society for DNA Repair and also co-director of the Minerva Center of the Biological Mechanisms of Health and Aging uh, at Bar-Ilan University. And, um, you know, you received various um, awards so it's really, uh, and you were actually also at Stony Brook University at some point uh, where, where I was a postdoc <laughs> for a while. So it's really an honor having you here. Thank you for coming. And our first question is usually um, about how did you discover to this passion, passion for science or that you wanted to, to turn your life um, into like a scientist science career was it a childhood dream or was something that happened later on that kind of sparked uh, this interest so uh, thank you again katarina first for the invitation and sorry for the technical hiccups um and uh, quite remarkable that we share some uh, history at stony brook which i actually really enjoyed back then as an exchange student um And I'm really excited to talk about our latest work here on the dream. So coming back to your question, um, the passion for devoting my my career to and my professional life to the biology of aging, that really started in high school already, in fact. When uh, in biology class, I realized that that aging is such an unresolved biological problem in biology and at the same time it's something that affects every human being but we know so little about so then I decided to study biology at a time when it wasn't really um, you know the biology of aging was not this uh, this high profile field that it is nowadays it has only grown since since then and now it's a super exciting time uh, to be in this field Yes, I agree. It is, and um, it's. It was probably, uh, you know, I don't know. Was it that people thought, ah, oh, maybe you should do something else. <laughs> this won't go anywhere, or was it a very supportive? Like, did you have to 
basically go your own path and um or did you have a lot of support along the way um thank you no i think at the beginning it was really not clear that uh, you know nobody in biology talked about aging and uh, it was really not mainstream so you really had to watch what you were saying because people were interested in developmental biology, biochemistry, biophysics, all these pretty regular things, but nobody thought about aging. And it only really changed much later. And um, I really started to go into the field of aging in my postdoc. So I had already in my PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry near Munich, um, I, I, I already worked on DNA repair and DNA damage response, but then really aging, uh, I started to, to really um, uh, very intensely investigate that in my, in my postdoc in a lab that had just discovered a link between DNA repair and aging. So it was all really, really new then. Um, and um, and then I, I, I went my path and uh, I think the field really co-evolved at the very same time that it really exploded. And I think everybody knows now how important this field of aging and, and nowadays longevity even is. Yeah, I agree. And I'm so glad you took that risk, I would say, to go in such a novel um, area and um, because now we're speaking here about this really interesting, important research. You published books, so um, I, I would say it was a wonderful choice and a really positive story uh, to share in these times that are in general not so positive. So thank you so much for sharing that insight with us. And uh, yeah, you, everyone has access to your PowerPoint. I shared the link on top. So if you could um, tell us when you're switching to the next slide, that helps people to follow along since it's not okay. the stage yet. And yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks you, Katarina. And uh, so let me then start with the first slide is just really the introduction. What am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about uh, genome stability in aging and disease. And I will give you a little bit of the new insights and, and uh, future therapeutic avenues that we want to develop based on our work. Um, and so you are, you are aware that um, we are living in the demographic change. And that has really started about 150 years ago. Up to, until then, the human life expectancy was about mid-30s, mid-40s, um, and that really was the time that most of humans had the prospect of living to. Only very few individuals really became significantly older, and that has dramatically changed. Now our life expectancy has doubled, and that's a marvelous accomplishment of medicine, hygiene, science, a better nutrition that really allows us now to live for extended periods of time um, that only very few of our ancestors had the privilege to do. Um, but what is happening now in this demographic change, and that's shown on this slide, is really that the number of elderly is increasing. 
So instead of having a very a pyramid uh, um, shape of uh, demography, uh, this has really completely altered. And we have now, um, particularly in Western Europe, North America, but China, for instance, is undergoing the demographic change in a super rapid speed. But also many countries around the world have an elderly population increasingly. And by this time that is displayed here on the slide, um, we will have three quarters of the then 2 billion people above the age of 60 living actually in developing countries. So it's a worldwide phenomenon. And what you see then on the next slide is that aging is associated with disease, chronic disease. This reach from dementia where Alzheimer's is the most prevalent one. If you're just getting old enough at the age of 85, your dementia risk is 40%. So almost every second one of you, of us, will suffer from dementia if we just get old enough. Cardiovascular diseases remain the number one killer. Uh, chronic kidney disease are a major uh, clinical challenge with many comorbidity associated. Type 2 diabetes is on the rise. Cancer, the number one cancer risk factor is age, above anything else you can imagine. Um, above any genetic factor, any tobacco smoking, age is the number one risk factor, osteoporosis, frailty, and so on. And what we see here on the right side is that the real disease of aging is multimorbidity. That means multiple chronic diseases are occurring at the same time. More than half of the elderly suffer from multimorbidity already nowadays, over 50% of the healthcare costs are spent over uh, on people above uh, 65. And as I said, there will be 2 billion elderly worldwide. So when we go to the next slide, we see now the concept of the aging biology. So if these individual diseases, cancer, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and so on, if all these diseases have a common uh, risk factor, which is aging, then maybe aging is the cause of these chronic diseases. And instead of treating one disease after the other, once they are there, why can't we instead treat aging and reduce the disease risk and increase health span? This, however, requires that we can therapeutically target the cause of aging. So we need to know what actually causes the aging. We have many, many, many symptoms of aging, but what is the cause? And that is what is at the heart of the interest of our lab. What we see in the next slide is a fundamentally important concept of aging. When we want to understand any process in biology, we always have to understand it in the context of evolutionary history. Because nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of uh, evolution, as Dobchansky has already uh, proclaimed. August Weismann, a zoologist and uh, one of the top three evolutionary biologists after, um, after Darwin and Wallace, in the late 19th century, proposed the germ plasm theory. It's the theory of inheritance, the most fundamental theory of inheritance that we are holding true to this day. 
Weisman realized that inheritance, the passing on of genes to the next generation, is only um, pursued through the germ cells. Only germ cells transmit the inheritable um, material, the genome, not any other somatic cells. As back then, it was not really clear yet. When he realized that the germ cells could indefinitely perpetuate the genetic information, Weizmann realized that an indefinite maintenance, immortality of the soma, would offer no evolutionary benefit for this species because the germ cells can continuously and continuously pass on the genetic information. We humans live now almost in the 7,000th generation of modern Homo sapiens. Our germ cells are 200,000 years old as modern Homo sapiens. So the soma is merely the vehicle to transmit uh, the germ cells. Now, if we go to the next slide, we see a key driver of aging. Which molecule has to be maintained indefinitely when it comes to the germ cells and for our entire lifespan when it comes to our soma? And that is the DNA. We see in the upper left that the DNA organized in chromosomes is constantly exposed to DNA damage. This can come from the outside, UV radiation, chemicals, tobacco smoke, all these kinds of things. But even from our normal endogenous um, uh, uh, cellular metabolism, reactive oxygen species, and all these things, aldehydes, all these things can damage DNA. It's been estimated that in each cell of our human body, each single day, while you're sitting here and listening to me, there's DNA damage to the tens of thousands on a daily basis occurring. All these plethora of different damaging types can lead to two distinct consequences, molecular consequences. There are uh, genetic aberrations, such as aneuploidy, translocations, um, mutations, deletions. And these are known in the red arrow that they can really drive cancer development. Cancer is a disease of the genes. When genes are altered, tumor suppressor genes, oncogenes are altered, then a cell can transform into a cancer cell and grow to a cancer. But DNA damage on the left-hand side here can also store transcription and replication. The reading of the genes, uh, which is needed to utilize genes, or the replication, the doubling of the DNA, which is necessary for every cell division. But when DNA damage persists, these two processes cannot function. The cell responds with DNA damage signaling, which then leads to cell fate alterations. Cell death, cellular senescence, cells can no longer um, proliferate. Uh, uh, tissues that depend on stem cells can no longer be replenished. Stem cells are lost. Some cells undergo polyploidization, such in the liver, for example. And this has pathology as a consequence. Cells decline in their function, tissues become atrophic and inflammation becomes systemic. This is how tissues degenerate. So DNA damage is a root cause of both cancer and aging. So DNA repair mechanisms have already very early 
uh, evolved to prevent these detrimental consequences. And DNA repair is absolutely essential to keep us healthy. I'm showing you here now two pictures of two boys that are born with defects in a DNA repair gene, a gene that encodes one of the many, many proteins that are involved in repairing the DNA. And you can see from these pictures that the phenotypic consequences could not possibly be any more distinct. On the one side, xeroderma pigmentosa dramatically increased skin cancer risk. Normally in, 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 uh, in us, it takes decades for skin cancer to evolve from the very first irradiation exposure. Here already during childhood, several thousand fold increased skin cancer susceptibility, showing us the mutagenic consequences of DNA damage. The UV damage that cannot be repaired here leads to mutations and that leads to cancer. On the right side, you see a boy who suffers from cocaine syndrome. Mechanistically, the repair mechanisms are very closely linked that these two boys have defects in, but phenotypically the pathology is completely different. At nine years of age, this boy has severe growth retardation. It has neurodegeneration, retinal degeneration, atherosclerosis, multiple age-related pathologies, diseases we only get when we are very old, here already before the teens. And one year after this picture was taken, this boy died with neurodegeneration, arteriosclerosis, and so on. So this shows us how DNA damage can drive the aging process. But also in us normal people, where we have our normal DNA repair mechanisms, DNA damage gradually increases and leads gradually to an increased cancer risk, to an increased aging pathology. We ask the question, is there a way how could we increase the DNA repair capacity? This has been a very, very difficult endeavor for the entire field because hundreds of distinct DNA damage types, if we see the next slide, hundreds of different distinct DNA damage types are formed. There are at least six major DNA repair systems that are required to remove the distinct damage types. And thus far, only highly lesion-specific DNA repair, single repair enzyme reactions, very, very simple for a specific um, DNA lesion, such as photolysis, could be improved. What we ask now, because DNA repair is so complex, so many different lesion types, so many different repair mechanisms, are there master regulators of DNA repair capacities that just nobody has seen before? The approach that we took in the lab was to ask, is there maybe something that is different between the soma, so the body, or the germline? Because we, I told you just a couple of minutes ago that the germline has extraordinary high repair capacities because the, the germline has to perpetuate the, the genetic information for, for generation after generation and generation. So they need to have very high genome maintenance. But the soma only needs to be maintained, the, the genome, for one individual lifespan. To answer this, 
we use instead of humans, we use the biological model organism, Xenoraptitis elegans, shown on this slide here um, in the lower part, where you see the soma and the germline of the animal that we use here as a model, because as biologists, we always need models. We need simple models to understand and then better understand human biology by simple model organisms. So can we confer the denoropath capacity of the germline to the soma? And in the next slide, I show you the approach that Arturo Bucharabal, a highly talented PhD student in the lab undertook. And Arturo here asked, when you look now at genes that we call DDR genes, DNA damage response genes, in C. elegans, in this nematode model, and ask whether these genes had in their promoters. So each gene is regulated by a promoter, and the promoter then determines how a gene is regulated. Is it switched on? Is it switched off? And there are specific elements in the promoter that are that are recognized by transcription regulatory proteins. And he asked whether the DNA damage response gene had in their promoters any enrichment of a specific type of motif sequence that could then be recognized by a specific regulator. And he found that the vast majority of DNA, DNA damage response genes had a specific motif overrepresented. We see it almost over 60% of these. And they enriched in so-called dream target sites. The CDCHR target site is a dream target site. And this dream target site is present of the majority of the DNA damage response genes. And here we have a schematic of this dream complex. It's a multi-protein complex that binds to the CDE and CHR element in these promoters. And it is a repressor, so when it sits there, it represses the downstream gene, the DNA genes. So we ask whether when we mutate now, when we have worms, C. elegans, that has mutations in these components of the dream complex, would that lead to higher expression of DNA gene and confer resistance to DNA damage? And this is on the next slide. This is now a test. So in the upper part, you see a synchronized L1 worms. The worms undergo development from the L1, the larval one stage, to L2, L3, L4 larval stage until adulthood. And in the control, we see then over 48 hours, the development from the L1 stage to the adult. When we treat these animals with DNA damage, here, for example, UV radiation, then we see that these animals are delayed in their development, their growth retarded in their development. And this we can, can um, uh, use as an assessment for the organism's response to DNA damage. And we see these graphs here in the different colors, where after 48 hours after everybody was in L1, where have they grown up to in zero uh, UV treatment they are all grown up to L4 larval stage, to the last larval stage of adulthood. And then uh, with increasing UV dose, 40 and 60 milliliters per square centimeter, they increasingly are still arrested because they're sensitive to DNA damage. When we then look at LIN52, DPL1, EFL, LIN35, these are all now 
mutations that inactivate different components of dream, all of these are significantly resistant. They grow better than a wild type after UV, indicating that they're resistant to the DNA damage. The lower part, we do a genetic epistasis experiment. We have LIN52 and TPR1 mutants. As single mutants, they have a strong resistance to UV. And the double mutant has exactly the same resistance. That tells us that they act, that they are genetically epistatic. That means they work together in conferring in the same pathway they work to confer this resistance to DNA damage. Now I showed you developing animals. As next, I will show you now adult worms. Here we let this animal grow to, to the first day of adulthood. And while in humans, as I showed you, humans already age if there's just a DNA repair defect because humans are so complex. So one repair defect is sufficient to accelerate human aging. In worms, we need to treat them with UV to accelerate their aging. They have the DNA damage-driven aging that we humans have when we treat them with DNA damage. And that's what we did here. In the solid lines, we see a shortening of lifespan and this is significantly extended in each one of these mutants in the dream complex. And on the right side of this slide, with these curves, I show you then that um, uh, the relative decrease and how much that is alleviated by the dream mutants. The next slide, I show you now a DNA lesion. So the TT are two um, adjacent bases in the DNA, so-called thymidine dimer. T stands for thymidine. When two are next to each other in the, in, the, in the chromosome, then it's a thymidine dimer. And they can dimerize when a UV, when a photon of the UV light hits these two thymidines, they are cross-linked to cyclobutan pyrimidine dimers, the most prevalent form of UV-induced damage. Because of this structure that I'm showing here, we get skin cancer. It's this lesion that gives us skin cancer. We know that. Now, in the lower part, you see under the uh, time after UV, the CPD, we use a slot plot here. So we uh, extract all the DNA from the worm, put it in a, in a um, slot plot, and use now a monoclonal antibody that recognizes specifically the CPD, the cyclobutan pyrimidine dimer. We see that it's formed in, in each case at the time point zero, right after UV, and within 24 hours, there's relatively little repair in a wild type, but in LIN52 or DPR1 mutants that are defective in, dream, in the dream complex, they have a much faster repair, 30% faster repair than the wild type. So repairs improve. Then we look at this in, 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 uh, in worms, in intact worms. We see here in green on the next slide, uh, on the top, we see the head of the worm. There are many neurons in these worms. We treated them with UV. We see now, again, with an antibody, we see the CPD lesions and uh, we link them with the fluorophore so we can, we can uh, really see them. And we see that there's, a, there's after 60 hours, some repair, but very inefficient in the wild type and much more pronounced in the link 52 mutant that is a dream mutant so better repair then we ask if you remember i told you that 
not only UV repair genes, but many, many repair genes in C. elegans have this dream target site. So we hypothesize, is it actually possible that there are many different types of repair genes derepressed when we mutate dreams? And that I'll show you on the next slide. Here we do now an RNA-seq. We sequence all the expressed mRNAs in a LIN52 mutant and compared with wild type. So LIN52 doesn't have the dream complex, contrast to the wild type. And we see now here a large number of genes induced because it's a repressor that we, uh, that we inactivate. And so many genes are derepressed, are induced. And among those genes in red here, we find many DNA repair genes. What has never been seen before is what uh, I summarize here on the right side, is that these repair genes that are now induced in the LIN52 mutants, these are repair genes that operate in all the major six repair mechanisms, nucleotide excision repair, NER, industrial crossing repair, base excision repair, homologous recombination repair, mismatch repair, non-homologous end joining, all these different types of DNA repair systems. Does it have consequences? Do we have now resistance not only against UV because of better UV damage repair, but do these animals really become resistant to any type of DNA damage? And that is indeed the case. Here again, we use the same assay that AI introduced you to already. And we, uh, uh, in the upper panel, we look at ionizing radiation on the next slide. And we see that there is in the LIN52 compared to the wild type a significant alleviation of the sensitivity. This alleviation is dependent on a double strand break repair mechanism. The CQ70 mutants, they are defective in non-homologous and joining a major repair mechanism for these double strand breaks, and that is required. There's no effect on CQ70 mutants in this lab. In the lower left panel, you see um, MMS treatment. MMS is an alkylating uh, agent that has a, inflicts a very different type of lesion. And we see here uh, that there's a significant alleviation of the sensitivity by LIN52. And what is more, even the repair mutant PolH1, it's one of the repair factors for these lesions, that is hypersensitive. So in the one milligram, you see very high number of the red L1 worms still, and this is reverted by LIN52. So the indicator can even suppress single DNA repair defects. And then lastly, on the lower right side, you see cisplatin. Cisplatin is a cross-linking agent that is very frequently used in the clinic for cancer patients to eliminate cancer cells. And here also we see significant alleviation of the sensitivity by the LIN52 mutant. So plethora of different type of DNA damage. Next, I want to show you an experiment that really surprised us. What we did here on this slide, uh, you see an embryo on the uh, upper left side, and this embryo normally develops into an, a larva. It hatches. But if we uh, use ionizing radiation to induce DNA breaks, these animals, these embryos will die. 
And we see in the black bars here that in the wild type, with increasing ionizing radiation, 2040 gray, we see many of more and more of these embryos are dead. LIN52 mutant, in contrast, becomes highly resistant. It can develop and grow into, into an animal. The next mutant we tested is here, BRCA BART. BRCA is BRCA1. You know this uh, maybe as a breast cancer susceptibility gene that human carriers have a very highly in, in, uh, increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And here, this mutant has a, has a com very complete defect in inducing homologous recombination repair. So repair mechanism set is highly accurate for repairing double stone breaks. And you see here in the, in the medium gray bars, you see how sensitive these mutants are to ionizing radiation. Nonetheless, the mutation in LIN52 reverts the sensitivity. They become very resistant. Now, I told you about worms, and you might wonder, why would I care about a worm? I'm a human, I'm not a worm. So let's have a look at humans. The dream complex is highly conserved. The same subunits that make the dream complex in human, in, in uh, worms make them up in humans. So we asked whether in humans validated dream target genes where we know that the dream complex binds and represses them, a large number of them are actually DNA repair genes, highly enriched in DNA repair genes, suggesting that the same mechanisms could be true. Is that indeed the case? So I told you that I showed you already this dream complex, highly conserved. The uh, concept is that when we inactivate dream complex, we could induce DNA repair gene expression thus counteracting cancer, promoting longevity by keeping our genome stable. Now in humans, the individual components of the dream could also join other complex and have other functions. But the, to specifically inactivate dream, we need to inhibit the kinase that phosphorylates here in yellow LIN52, the kinase activates the dream complex. It's assembled by this action of the DIRK1A kinase on this next slide. And we can now, for DIRK1A, there are many inhibitors, including harmine and Indy that are shown here. Harmine is a natural component known for many, many decades already. Indy is a chemical inhibitor. We wanted to use two completely distinct type of inhibitors because with every kinase in the world, when you inhibit it, you might also have off-target effects. So we wanted to be specific. Does this work? Here we use now in human quiescent uh, cells, either harmine or indi, and we ask whether under these distinct chemical inhibitors of DIRK1A, we would indeed see an induction of dream target. And exactly this is what we see. 161 dream target genes, huge enrichment of induced dream target genes. And among them in orange here, we find many DNA repair genes. Does this have the same consequence as in C. elegans? And that is shown here. So what we do here is we take the, uh, on this slide, we, we, we um, take now human quiescent cells, treat them with either UV-induced lesions or with alkylating lesions. 
and then measure the apoptotic cells. So apoptosis is cell death. We measure how many cells are dying and with UV or with MMS, the alkylating agent. It's a very high increase of apoptosis. Many cells are dying. When we, however, treat the cells either with harmine or with Indi, we can revert this and they become resistant because they have the induction of all these denoropergins. So it's highly conserved from worms to humans. Could this be applicable in an organism, in a mammal? So there we went to mice. And on the next slide, I show you some background. Um, I show you an intervention model for macular degeneration, retinal degeneration. What we see on the left part um, is a mouse that has the same defect as the cocaine syndrome patient I showed you at the beginning. You remember it had, uh, the, the patient needed this, this uh, eye protection, strong visual aids also, because the retina was degenerating. And the, the retina is degenerating because the cells in this ONL, that's the outer nuclear layer where all the photoreceptors are, it degenerates, they are dying, and that's why vision loss occurs. And this can happen to us in humans when we age, in our normal aging process. Macular degeneration during aging can eventually lead to blindness. Then we looked on the right-hand side whether transcription-coupled nucleotide excision repair, this is the repair mechanism where the CS B protein operates on. Whether these were downregulated in human AMD, and this is indeed the case. We see that exactly this repair genes are downregulated that are required to maintain our photoreceptors, suggesting that their downregulation could be causal. What happens now if we take a mouse that develops this retinal degeneration just like the patients and we treat it with harmon. And then I'll show you on the next slide. What we did here, we took an, an ESCC1 mouse knockout. It's the most widely used mouse model for premature aging. And we treated for, with two, we, for two weeks with harmon. Then assess by an assay that's called tunnel. It's a it's a, um, a, a labeling assay for apoptotic, for dying cells. And you see in the blue here, the blue marks DNA. So we see, we can find the cells. And then in green, we see the cells that are dying. And we see that there are more cells dying in ESCC1. And we can reduce that by just injecting harmine. And on the right side, you see the quantification of that. Then we asked whether in these eyes there would be also a reduction of the DNA damage. On the next slide, we use a marker that's called gamma H2AX in red. And we see, we do the, we take the exact same retinas and we see here now, we see this better in the inner nuclear layer because of their cell structure. So you see really the, the damage here. And the untreated, you see a very strong induction of DNA damage that is strongly mitigated by the treatment of harmine. And on the right side, you see the quantification. So what did I show you here? I showed you that the dream functions on the last slide here, that the dream function is a master regulator of DNA repair capacities. The dream mutants in C. elegans elevate resistance to DNA damage by improving DNA repair kinetics. 
Dream mutants de-repress somatic expression of de-repair dreams and confer germline-like repair capacity. The dream complex inhibition in quiescent human cells elevates resistance to distinct DNA damage types. The dream inhibition by harmony in vivo protects from retinal degeneration in DNC1 prodroid mice. And the dream inhibition of a pharmacological route for enhanced genome maintenance to prevent DNA damage from cancer development and aging. Now, on the very last slide, I, I acknowledge also additional people, particularly for the um, uh, mammalian experiment um, in, uh, that were done in George Karina's lab with uh, Georgina on, and uh, Kalina, uh, who, who did these, uh, those experiments. Um, the bioinformatics analysis was supported by David Meyer, and the major driver of this project was really Arturo Bujabal, that, whom I acknowledged already. And with that, um, I would hand back to Katerina and I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and for sharing all this work um, and this very elegant work. Um, so um, yeah, we really appreciate it um, that we got this yeah, really introduction into the field combined you know, with your very novel research results um, that span from the little worms to uh, <laughs> to human cells so uh, it's really wonderful and um, I know Lupta had questions and other people had questions one thing that came immediately to my mind um, did anyone from NASA or like Mars expedition uh, people come to you um, very interested in this research because I think, you know, radiation exposure is a huge problem for prolonged, um, um, you know, space exposure. So is there anyone that, you know, is really interested and did you send some C. elegance or are you planning to send some C. elegance into space and, and when, you know, with manipulations there? This is an absolutely excellent question that you are asking there, because indeed uh, you can just forget about the mission to Mars if you do not solve the problem of radiation-induced DNA damage. It's completely impossible. It's, uh, uh, you, you will get cancer and there's no way you survive that. This problem has to be addressed. And um, I think it's really high time that, uh, you know, our paper is out. So um, NASA is very welcome to, uh, we are happy to help. Um, it's absolutely essential that this problem is addressed. Um, the radiation exposure in space is, um, is highly toxic for humans. There's no shielding. You, shielding will never be sufficient for that. Um, so uh, you really have to address this problem. And I think we have here a very interesting proposition that we have for the first time a general mechanism. So we have a druggable target. Uh, so that is indeed absolutely possible. Um, and uh, it cannot be emphasized enough how urgent it is uh, to address this issue to make um, a space travel safe. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's so curious that nobody brought you are like Elon Musk or somebody that have this dream of maybe they are, are they, they should be aware of this issue, right? I mean, if even I can think of it, 
So what I heard is that that um, this issue gets um, frequently sidelined because it's something uh, of a negative image, but I think it's absolutely essential for the health and safety of the of the astronauts and of anybody who is uh, space traveling that this is being addressed. There are health issues and they must be addressed. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. So if anyone knows anyone at NASA, please <laughs> tell them to reach out. And yeah, and um, I wanted to uh, pass on first the microphone to others here and give them an opportunity. And then if there's still time, I'll continue with my questions. Thank you. Yeah, if, if you want, I'll go next. Um, a very interesting topic, exciting. I had the same thought as Katerina about space, <laughs> so it's not unique to her. Anyway, um, I was wondering, um, there's a researcher, Paul Ewald, and he, he has written a number of articles about how uh, viruses that may not even cause any symptoms, viruses are going to want to prolong the life of cells because a lot of them just want to hang out there, latent viruses. And so they, they apparently induce mutations that, that kind of um, go towards cancer to some degree. And um, so I was thinking about this, and then he was saying that, well, then once you have that situation where they've already impacted a number of the uh, mechanisms, then it doesn't take as much for a mutation to come along and cause the cancer to become um, a big problem. And so I was thinking about this and other intracellular microbes also induce mutations like mycobacterium tuberculosis has been studied. And I was thinking about this and I, how, how would you think that this would interact with what you're talking about? You think that this repair mechanism would just handle the ones induced by microbes adequately perhaps? Thanks. That is, that is an interesting thought. Um, Yes, certainly there are many factors that induce DNA damage and, and, and uh, viral infections are certainly um, an important source of that. And uh, it would be very interesting to explore and how far it can also um, uh, mitigate the consequences of viral infections that are tumor associated. So there, is, uh, there, there are um, a, a number of viruses that that promote tumor development through interacting with components also of the DNA damage response uh, machinery, such as P53, for example. Um, and uh, there, there is a significant uh, um, uh, amount of cancers associated with, with, with uh, causation by viral in, infections. Um, and it's a, it's a very interesting idea to see now how we can slow down the mutagenic effect by improving DNA repair there. Um, also, our own genome is composed uh, of repetitive elements, uh, retrotransposons, and all kind of those things that need to be effectively controlled. Here again, an interesting aspect is also that germ cells control them uh, far more e effectively because uh, they, are, they can, of course, cause much more haywork in the long term, right, for generations to come. Uh, so it would be very interesting to see how far also here repressive genome stabilizing mechanisms are at play and could be really beneficial here. I think it's a, it's a very fascinating thought indeed. Yeah, and if, if um, 
if it could counter the the virus's effect on the on the genes, then it would perhaps even be antiviral to some degree. Anyway, an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for the nice topic. If I'm allowed to talk right now, Katarina. Please. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, just coming back to uh, the question raised before uh, related to Mars and uh, uh, traveling to Mars. So I saw an article last time was published in Nature, um, March 2023, where they are um, really working hard on that, on that topic uh, uh, to see how can we, uh, can we first solve the problem of radiation. And first of all, we need to uh, 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 look for organisms they are living there and they are absorbing uh, the CO2. So they are mainly training uh, data taken from Chile and they are, I think they are planning to go there and to make a really, really amazing work because they will, they will, uh, they will um, Restrict the, the the regions for, for research for searching for microorganisms, and also they, it will be much more specific because they are training data. So anyway, there was only uh, in, in, uh, so uh, my question is related to uh, to your topic. By the way, it's really really nice topic. So there is a, we know already there is a, a, a gene called. B, uh, B53 uh, in human and, and is, uh, is uh, involved in cell division and DNA repair and apoptosis. And, and, um, and basically it does not work as long as the, the cell is in steady state, so it means in equity, but it, it works if, if something is, is going wrong. Is there anything related on the, on the C elegans? Yes, you're bringing me back to my PhD thesis, where we actually discovered the P53 homologue in C. elegans. And this does something very, very similar to what it does in the humans. It eliminates cells that have DNA damage. And what's really fascinating about the P53 form, it's its ancestor form, is that it does that very, very specifically in cells during oogenesis, you know, when new oocytes are made. And during that process, there's a process that's called meiotic recombination uh, that makes all the new links between chromosomes that then bring all the variability for new germ cells, right? There's always recombination in every, um, whenever a germ cell is made so that we have all these genetic variation that we have also as humans, right? So then this P53 is very specifically eliminating those cells that have not completed that process and where still strand breaks are around that have not been properly processed. And those cells could not make really stable oocytes. So they eliminated and uh, resorbed. And so uh, there are no resources uh, wasted by that, um, but it really may ensures that only the most stable genomes are passed on to the next generation during oogenesis. Very highly conserved process. We do the exact same, particularly human oogenesis, a process where a very tight selection process is, um, uh, is, is, is used um, to eliminate any damaged oocytes. So, 
Uh, that's what the, P the P53 does there. It does not operate in C. elegans in the soma because the soma in C. elegans is all post-mitotic terminally differentiated cells. So there's no much point in eliminating them by apoptosis. So then this process has of course evolved in mammals that also um, stem cells are eliminated by P53 and things like that. So it's now a more complex process. But the mechanisms through which uh, P53 operates is exactly the same already in C. elegans um, as we established a few many oh, years so, ago. Uh, yeah, thank you. So it, since you did already your PhD in this gene, so you, you may know better than me. Um, there is a there is one uh, also a research uh, was. Uh, published also in uh, in March 23, also by Nature, and in, this is there was a new for me that the elephants have 20 copies of this gene, in what we have just two copies, and uh, and basically the the tw 20 copies they are not identical, they have some mutations, and this this gene is regulated by this MDM2. And basically, that's why it's this gene, what I understood, is working only, is not working while the cell is in steady state. So um, they are working now to make, uh, uh, to, to um, see how this RNA isomers, which gives protein isomers, which are many, many in the elephant, they're escaping this regulation from MD, MDM2. And they are they are training the model now. So really, I'm really excited to see what is coming out after this gene because I think it's really key in the human genome. Uh, thanks a lot. Absolutely, and sometimes you know we wish we were elephants because this is really a superior tumor protection by these additional copies of p53, um, and and uh, it gives an additional layer of protection for, against cancer indeed. Yeah, thank you so much for those questions uh, and the answers. Um, Dr. Shah, did you have a question? Yeah, thank you so much for your wonderful presentation. My question that was about the LIN52 as part of the member, as long as we know they are cell dependent, cell cycle dependent. And when we just keep a track on a LIN52, we can find a, in a, for example, some of the situation like a, glucose metabolic dysfunction or neurodegenerative disease. My question is specifically, do you have any further information for the LIN52 and how much earlier we can just keep track of that and it can be helpful or not? So we see in C. elegans already during embryogenesis these effects, that it has a beneficial effect. We see that in the mice, it's also very, very, very early that we, uh, we use the inhibitors um, uh, um, in, the, in the very, very young mice during the first week of their life. They have a beneficial effect. So that suggests that it can be used already very early. So the gene complex also regulates uh, um, uh, cell cycle genes, that is, that is correct. Um, and that's how it was originally also identified as a cell cycle gene regulator. But the dream mutants like LIN52, for example, when you mutate it, although you get some derepression of also cell cycle genes, that's not enough to drive cells into cell cycles. So that's why we think it's also very safe to target the dream complex. Because, and that is because uh, you need additional, very strong oncogenes that drive cells into cell cycle. And only then there's an effect, but not 
in an otherwise um, normal uh, cell. So uh, that uh, gives us actually very, a lot of confidence that this is actually a very safe route for treatment. And what about the immune response? Did you find any immune response in relation no, to the transmission about Bercon? Okay. No, we did not find immune responses. So immune responses we usually find when there's chronic DNA damage. When the DNA damage is not resolved, then you get inflammatory responses. And you see that even, you can see that observed it yourself, even when you get UV radiation on the skin, you get all these inflammatory responses. Um, here in our system, we did not see much of that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I wanted really quick um, to read out Robert's uh, question and then we go on to Mario and Amir. Um, Robert asked in the chat, it was related a little bit to the, the NASA question. Um, what do you think your research results would be under different uh, pressures and various depths? And, um, would that make a difference in how the this repair mechanisms would act? It would also be interesting, you know, if we fly to other planets one day with very different Yeah. So, so microgravity might indeed have an effect that is, that is possible. I think it's certainly something to, ex, to explore. I mean, there are also um, locations that are more radiation prone. I mean, you have, of course, with increasing height, you have the UV. With increasing depths, you can have other, uh, um, other pressures, of course. I mean, we know that mechanical stress induces DNA damage. It's actually a very relevant fact. was only really understood in the last few years that mechanical stress on a cell can uh, um, can lead to DNA breaks also. Um, and so there are many, there are indeed many factors that, uh, that, that can destabilize the genome because DNA is just, it's just not a metastable molecule. Um, so, and it would be indeed very interesting to, uh, um, to look at additional of these environmental factors and how we could mitigate the genotoxic effect. Yeah, thank you. Um, it would be, yeah, an uh, interesting future. And um, I wanted to check with you how much time you still have. I know we said we stay around an hour, so we would have three more people that didn't get to ask a question, but I, you know. That's fine. Let them, yeah. let them ask their question. Okay, That's wonderful. Fine. Okay, I think Mario was first, and Amir, and then Eric. Thank you. Sorry, I don't have questions. You can go with the okay. next. Thank person. you so much. Uh, Amir, please go ahead. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you very much, Bjorn, for the nice presentation. And yeah, congrats for the excellent work. Uh, I have actually two questions. Uh, so my first question is about regulation of the of the of the dream uh, uh, complex. Uh, is it more in the level of uh, post translational regulation like phosphorylation and so on or uh, uh, or we also see regulation in the in the in the mrna level and uh, by any chance have you ever checked whether they have uh, let's say uh, common uh, domains in the tree prime utr being target of uh, the same kind of microRNA or things like that do they have some some regulatory uh, motives in common uh, 
my second question is uh, why do we see this in 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 all the organisms this is uh, this is conserved from c elegans to human that once the cells come out of quiescence they turn off the dna repair machinery what what is what is the benefit uh, of, of of doing so in from from an evolutionary point of view yeah thank you very much thank you Amir. Uh, excellent question so the first question is uh, the regulatory mechanisms what we know about the regulation of the dream complex in uh, in, in mammals um is that it's this phosphorylation by dirk 1a that's really essential for the assembly of dream and this post uh, um, uh, post translational modification is particularly important because the dream individual dream components also have other functions in other part of the cell cycle so uh, for example part of the complex also binds them another uh, a protein and induces uh, cell cycle uh, genes that promote cell cycle entry in a non-dream complex and so um, these these proteins have to be constantly around because they are involved in different uh, complexes so um, when we then uh, and specifically in outside of proliferation in g0 g1 phase of the cell cycle differentiated cells then the dream complex is as dream assembled and represses the expression of this deeper repair genes. Um, and now why, your second question, why is that done? And I think here it's most, you can learn most of that in C. elegans because you can actually look at the fitness. Fitness in evolutionary biology means how many progeny on the long run are uh, produced. How successful is the passage and expansion of the genetic material and that is the critical measure and that's why if you need to decide where do you in, invest your resources do you invest them into the germline or do you invest them into the soma then it's important to invest enough in the germline to really make sure that they produce offspring and for genome maintenance germ cells have to be have a very, very low mutation rate. They have extraordinary high genome maintenance. The soma doesn't need that. So if we didn't um, repress the DNA repair capacity in the soma, it will be a waste because it does not contribute to the fitness anymore after a few days. Worms in the wild live only two, three days. They, you rarely find older ones because they have bursts of reproduction. They produce 300 offsprings within a few days. They don't need to be hang, hang around like they do in the lab or like we humans hang around now for decades and decades and decades. That has never been important for humans in, in the history for more than three, four decades for humans. So, uh, and we see that actually, we see that these mutants do have some reduced fecundity so there is uh, probably a trade-off that is all these investment into somatic repair does have a trade-off and would be counter-selected in nature. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Um, thank you did very you... much. Oh, sorry for speaking over. Um, Eric, did you have a question? Yeah, sorry. My question was um, when you were um, speaking about mechanical stress, uh, 
resulting in inflammation. That's actually something that, um, like I'm a cancer patient and something that my dentist uh, spoke about that more and more dentists are seeing cases of just purely what would otherwise just be called uh, mechanical stress resulting in sort of tumors in, in a lot of patients. And um, um, so, so my question was, in terms of regulatory um, complexes or systems, things like subthreshold or ecologies, uh, could you comment on uh, perhaps uh, those factors and how um, like an ecology could cause inflammation, if that makes any sense? Because I'm struggling to see how it, it just seems like we always just pair it together. I'm not sure if you know the reference, Lisa needs braces, dental plan, the two always come together and boom, that's what you get, like inflammation, cancer. But in terms of mechanism, if you could comment a, a little bit more on the nuance there. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so um, inflammation is, of course, a very general term. And inflammation is triggered by um, many different types of stimuli, including DNA damage. And the best example of that is uh, the skin, because UV in the skin leads to uh, DNA damage. The cells respond, they send out cytokines. Um, there is an invasion of immune cells that, that uh, boost inflammation, which for a certain period of time is actually a beneficial thing because it allows these tissues to remodel and repair. But then it has to be switched off again. So there are the immune suppressive mechanisms that switch off the inflammation again. And that is a very important normal process. The problem, however, becomes when inflammation is cro becomes chronic. And that happens, for example, when the DNA damage cannot be repaired. Then we know that we have chronic inflammation. I showed you this premature aging patients, they also have chronic inflammation because there's an ongoing DNA damage response that is supposedly only be transient, only for the period of time until you're bare. But when then the damage uh, persists for too long, this inflammation becomes chronic. Now the, the knowledge about, about um, mechanical stress and DNA damage is very new still, it's a very new field. What has been observed, so mechanical stress is something that very normally also occurs in tissues. Tissue can be compressed when also in the normal renewal process. And this, and also when cells migrate, uh, they sometimes have to slip through uh, 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 narrow spaces in, in, in the body. And all this. Oh, so you meant at the individual cell level, because I was talking yes. in, uh, intercellular, like uh, the dentist commented on uh, the interior, uh, like your tooth rubbing on the inside of your gum could cause a soft tissue cancer. But you're saying that it could be even more, more subtle that just in, in merely in that uh, moment of momentary mechanical pressure on the cell itself, could yes, cause that kind exactly, of, wow, exactly. Wow, that's, right. Well, that, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so that, it's that, really that's, molecular yeah. event, yes. And what's been observed is that when normally the DNA can buffer this mechanical stress, it has certain structural elements there that it can buffer it, so it's not affected by it. But when these processes don't work properly, then the DNA can actually break and DNA damage can uh, result. All righty, thank you. 
Yeah, thank you for those um, questions and uh, the answers. And it, it came to my mind, like, is there a limit of how many times or how long a dream complex can fix a cell? Like, could the cell become immortal? I mean, you know, cancer cells can, but in theory, we know cells can, but without inducing cancer, do you think we have like a limitless amount of repair possibilities? That's a very good question. Um, I think our germ cells would argue that indeed there could be an unlimited uh, DNA repair. There's always a lot of damage. There will always be some re will result in mutations. Um, how far we can drive up the repair in somatic cells, I think it's a valid question. We don't know how much we can achieve there. The critical question is really, can we achieve enough to keep us healthy when we age? And that is really fundamentally important question because the big problem we are facing at the moment, I showed you these numbers at the beginning of the seminar, that we have an enormous burden of age-related diseases. We have over half of the elderly already suffering from chronic diseases of, of, of age. And we really need to maintain health span for longer. That is the most important target that we should not lose sight of. Even if there are a lot of people in, in the tech sector, there are some people that say they want to live forever, all these things, fine, let them do it. But first of all, we need to fix really the real problems we have. And the real problems are chronic age-related diseases, real disease, we have a problem of cancer, 20% of the humans die of cancer. 40% of all of us at some point in their lives will develop a cancer. 40% um, dementia with 85, all these things. So we need to really um, maintain our health for longer to drive back the disease span. We have now at the in average, at the end of our life, about 13 years sickness before we die. On average, that's just the average. And that is way too long. And so we really have to compress this time of disease and stay longer for, healthier for longer. And for that, I think we have a very realistic perspective with accomplishing here better DNA repair that can, that can maintain ourselves for that critical period of time longer. If I may add a little co uh, comedic relief, uh, if you are going to live forever, uh, there should be some sort of mandatory castration or at least terminate your lineage. So uh, <laughs> that would seem a little fair. There's a natural limit at the moment on, uh, you know, most reproduction. It's very rare that people reproduce when they are when they are very old. And also with the socioeconomics, the, the, the wealthier people are, the the less uh, they reproduce, that's an observation. So I think uh, for that, I think the most important thing is to lift people out of poverty. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, just a, a short command. So um, it's probably philosophical one or probably to, to think about that, but um, is it really related to age or is it accumulative from uh, of mutations uh, already started from uh, uh, infant like the the food we have now the stress we are leaving the uh, isolation we are leaving also so all many many uh, kind of of uh, 
conditions which make probably a mutation cumulative there rather than just uh, be uh, or reaching 60 or 70 years old and then say, okay, I have cancer, but this cancer actually it starts already, but we cannot detect it. I don't know if I was clear in my, it's, it's not really a question, it probably it's a philosophical one, but I leave it yeah. open. I think it's a it's it's a it's a very uh, it's a very valid comment and uh, indeed um, there's there is a currently an ongoing debate about what is the role of mutations mutations accumulate as a function of age the rate of mutation is very very strongly related in mammals to the maximum lifespan of a species so mouse has much higher mutation rates than the human for example um, and mutations alter gene function so once there's a mutation you can there's no way back because you don't know what's the mutation and what's the non-mutation um so mutations are sequence alterations and they accumulate we know they cause cancer um they are a measure of how much dna damage has occurred because dna damage is far more frequent than mutations um, because much of it is repaired but then uh, some of them might become chronic. Um, and so it could be the gradual accumulation. There are certainly environmental factors that, um, that can boost DNA damage. Smoking is a very good example. So if you are interested in accelerating your aging process, smoking is a very good way of doing that. Um, uh, photo aging by UV, for example, but even our very normal metabolism, there will be always DNA damage ongoing and it will constantly build up. Uh, and indeed, some of them in mitochondria, for example, most of it is probably already set by mutations during the rapid expansion of mitochondria and embryogenesis. So th this is a very interesting point, how much is already early on and how much is added later on. Um, very interesting discussion points. Yeah, I had, I'm sorry to, to stretch your time patience here so much, but regarding fertility, since we were, you know, mm -hmm. very briefly in a humorous way talking about it, but now in a more serious way, you know, infertility rates are, uh, rates are rising in developed countries. Do you think that using the dream complex mechanism treatment basically could um could improve viability of uh, germlines maybe from people that nowadays are older trying to get kids if they you know for in vitro fertilization do you think like first a treatment i know it should be active anyways but maybe it's not anymore since the eggs um, has been laying around and does you know there's been paper shown that sperm from older males have uh, epigenetic um, changes to them that can be even inherited do, do you think there would also be an avenue for for this uh, field so thank you for that question it's an excellent question so there's indeed I just returned from a, from a, a reproductive aging conference in Chicago a few days ago, and it's a field that is really thriving now. So it's, it's a field that has been ignored for many, many decades. I think everyone who is concerned with uh, female health uh, knows how much negligence there has been on uh, the entire female health, but including reproductive health. 
um, now this field is really changing and it's uh, it's very, very exciting to see the new developments here. And uh, this has been really driven in very recent years by very large genetic studies to identify which factors, which genetic factors um, uh, influence uh, menopause. So menopause is a, it's a human specific traits. There's almost no other um, other mammal that has, has menopause. Um, and um, the age of menopause is varies quite a lot. There are early menopause women, there are uh, much later menopause women. Um, the, the average is uh, somewhere around 50. Um, and it varies really a lot. And so they ask whether there are any, and 50% of the age of natural menopause is genetically uh, influenced. So it's, a, it's, it's a very valuable to now ask, are there genetic traits associated with um, age of natural menopause? And this analysis has been done now in hundreds of thousands of, of women, including at the bio, UK Biobank. And it's the, the result is crystal clear that it's all about DNA repair. DNA repair variance is the number one process that is associated with uh, the age of natural menopause. And that is a good proxy for fertility. Fertility is much, much harder to address at itself, but um, um, uh, age of natural menopause is a very good indicator for that. Um, and so it's DNA repair really suggesting that indeed the regulation of DNA repair could actually have a major effect on that. We do not know whether it's the repair in the in the in, in the soma or in the actual X that we don't know yet because there are very intricate interactions between somatic cells like for example the, the granulosa cells and the and the egg. Um, so this is a very very interesting uh, topic of investigation. And I really expect that there will be major advances in the next uh, few years to come. Yeah, that sounds wonderful and very promising. So um, thank you for coming here and sharing this research and all your insights and answering so many questions. We really appreciate it. I think for me, at least, this was a really wonderful and interesting discussion. And um, yeah, we are very curious to follow your work along in the future. It makes me at least to think in a very hopeful way um, uh, of the future. So thank you for doing this work and taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure with wonderful questions. And I hope some of you will uh, carry some inspirations for the future from this. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And yeah, thank you everyone for coming and asking questions. Um, it makes the discussion so much more interesting um, than me just, um, you know, coming up with questions. It, it makes, um, yeah, it makes a way more complex and exciting uh, discussion. And if you want to join us next week, we have um, with Dr. Hennigan, um, uh, talk about how climate uh, changes are driving changes in zooplankton levels and availability for food in the ocean. And uh, we'll have 
um, a CO2 removal room and an archaeology room, a molecular study on archaeology uh, subjects um, in Egypt and uh, giving us new insights of a different type of embalming um, methods. So, yeah, we'll have a big variety of talks. I hope to hear you all again. And Bjorn, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you, thank you so much.